Welcome to the London Business School podcast series, The Reality of Artificial Intelligence, How Our Business is Using AI Today. I am Julian Birkinshaw, Professor of Strategy and Entrepreneurship at London Business School, and I'm hosting this series where we discuss the practical applications of AI in the workplace. We will cut through the hyperbole and the scaremongering to ask how are companies using AI today? What are the practical problems it is solving? Where are the challenges and opportunities? Joining me for this discussion are Michael Davies, guest lecturer at London Business School and MIT, and the founder of Endeavour Partners, and David Lancefield, senior partner at Strategy and part of PwC. Welcome to both of you. Thank you. Let me start by asking you a very practical question. How are we as consumers benefiting from AI in our everyday lives today? What can I do better or faster, thanks to AI, than I could do five years ago? Uh, David. I think much more than perhaps we anticipate. I'm a media person, and you think about our media diet, it's actually infused and uh, designed by AI nutritionists. What we listen to in our music, what we watch on TV, how we consume news, much of it is particularly the new media sort of platforms that we use, the Spotify's, Amazon's, Netflix, and so on, have AI at the heart of it. So be, be more specific. So when I look at the recommendations on recommendations Spotify... Recommendations are one part of it. How, how is, what is Spotify doing to give me those recommendations in a nutshell? Mining your own consumption, synthesising that with the consumption of the media of others, and then effectively working out what works in what, what sort of slot, what type of content do you actually listen to, read, watch at certain times, in order to, in a way, optimise, if you like, optimise your enjoyment of that platform. So it's helping me to figure out what it is that I like, even though I didn't know yes, I liked Yes, and, and also people who are like you in terms of the, the overall platforms. It's not only your own consumption, but profiles of people like yourself. And we're going to get a little bit into how that happens in a second. But Michael, what's a good example from your experience? I'd pick two. One, I think, which is probably the most pervasive application, which is Amazon's Echo and Google Home. I mean, uh, tens of millions of homes with them already in, and I'm sort of dependent on it. I have small children. The ability to go, hey, Alexa, show me Georgia, and to see an image of what's actually going on in her room, or like me, you know, add milk to the shopping list, is an AI-enabled, deeply pervasive application that I use many times a day. At the other end of the spectrum, it would be AI and customer service, where we're now using it, for instance, to recognize people's emotions, play them back to them in a way that means you've got a robot doing what would otherwise be very routine, narrow, boring work. And both the consumer who's getting better customer service, and the person who would otherwise be working in a very boring job in a customer service centre, they're both benefiting from this. And so when I'm on a website and I'm typing a question, it's almost certainly a computer that's answering me. Is that correct? Yes, it's almost certainly a computer. And I think the big distinction is coming when you're going from it's just being a computer with a rote way of doing it to where people like Tala, T-A-L-L-A, are enabling the system to become progressively smarter. It learns from pe how people respond to the answers. So it's unsupervised and continues to get better. Or the sort of technology that's being deployed by companies like Soul Machines, where you're actually adding the emotional component to it, understanding how you're feeling. That's sort of the, the level at which it goes beyond just a basic chatbot to something which is actually a better customer experience. So I want us to go a bit deeper now into... What exactly is happening? So you, you mentioned Alexa. Uh, Alexa, play me some jazz music yeah. or whatever. You've been what in my are, home, haven't you? <laughs> <laughs> what other steps 
that are happening behind the scenes when I speak and somehow Alexa answers me. You can think of their simple way of putting it for Alexa. There's three stages. One is they take the raw sound and out of it I extract phonemes. I, I figure out what actually the important structural elements are. The second one is the NLP piece, the, the natural language processing, turning it into words. Now, that's one of the areas where there's been the greatest improvement. Basically, the error rate has kept halving about every 18 months over the last five or six years. And we've gone from that part of it being really quite bad five years ago to being incredibly accurate. I mean, I live in America, and it even now recognizes my British accent. And she did not used to recognize my British accent 18 months ago. I had to turn to my American daughter and say, could you tell... Alexa to do what I want her to do. The one thing I'd add, Julian, is what's going on behind the scenes to come up with these new innovations, yeah. these new services, is in the companies, the best companies are bringing different people together. You know, the people who have access to the data, we may talk about that, you know, actually the data on the customer, the creative people, the people who have the business angle, the operational, they actually all need to come together to work out what's the right application of AI in the right context. It's not a silo of a group of data scientists doing it on their own. It actually requires much more collaboration in the company to come up with these services. And actually, I'd say a lot of the companies we've mentioned and more, I would say don't actually talk that much about AI. They just talk about doing amazing, amazing things for their customers. I want to come back to some of the, shall we say, business implications towards the end. But before I do that, we've got to remind ourselves a little bit of the historical context here. I mean, just briefly, AI has been around for our lifetimes. I mean, I think Alan Turing famously came up with this thing called the Turing test, which was essentially a way of you know, figuring out, you know, is a computer or a person behind the screen? That was the Turing test. We talked about it for decades after that, there was a thing called the AI winter, which I understand was a period when artificial intelligence technology kind of lost its way. It's only the last decade we've seen this real resurgence in practical applications. David, what, what's going on there? What has led to this renewal or resurgence of interest in artificial intelligence? What's happened that makes it possible to use this stuff now that we couldn't before? That's a, that's a big question. That's a huge question. I mean, I'll come from the business angle, and perhaps the government one. We are seeing the rise of what are called bionic companies, the sort of the modern day um, Jamie Summers, um, Steve Austins of the world that fuse the best of cognitive capability and human endeavour. And these are the, you know, the Alibabas, the Baidus and so on. And I think they have put AI at often at the heart of those organisations. Now, as to how, how, that's about individual entrepreneurship, risk-taking. In some cases, governments giving the, the right space and support and capital to drive it forward. So, But there's been a lot of innovation around that. There's been clustering of particular companies to do that. I think also some executives have had perhaps a more open mind and given more of a voice to some of the, if you like, techies, who've actually been at the sideline of business to say, imagine if we could do this, and actually properly invited them in to, to play a bigger role. So we've got huge investment. We've got, obviously, it goes without saying, huge increases in processing power yeah. through technology. Michael, talk a little bit about the, the, the different ways that computers learn, computers actually figure out the answers to our difficult questions. I think that's one of the key parts. It's very much a complement to what David talked about. One of the things I'd highlight about your bionic companies is these born digital businesses had good data. They had good data that was in readily accessible forms. To make AI work, you need a combination of data and algorithms. 
And the simpler way to think about it is, one, I tell a computer explicitly what to do. I program it. Two, I coach it. I explicitly teach it. That's called supervised learning. The big advance around 2010 was in what's called unsupervised learning, where I let the computer figure out the answer from the data. But to do that, you need the data. That's one of the key ingredients. And these born digital businesses started accelerating because they had these great big data sets that they could munge and they could figure out answers from. That was one of the key breakthroughs. Right. And so, for example, what I've read is that in terms of of translation from English to Chinese. Uh, we used to attempt to actually kind of figure out the rules as you went from one language to the other. Now, essentially, if it's Google or whatever, it's just got millions and millions of sentences which it's basically drawing from in order to, to figure out the right translation. Is this that right? is a subject very dear to my heart because my mother was a psycholinguist. She was a professor of psycholinguistics and she worked on the first what's called corpus-based dictionary 25 years or so. And a corpus-based dictionary, instead of saying, I'm Samuel Johnson and I am a master of the universe and I will figure out the right answer, it was actually looking at how words got used. We've now, but there were people doing it manually then. Now it's computers figuring it out for themselves. So we're just throwing data at the problem in some ways. We're and throwing data at the increasing problem. Increasing processing capacity we've got allows us to I think, come I th- to these answers. I think it's partly throwing. I think it's getting it in the right place. So you know, every time an executive says, I want to do an AI experiment initiative, they go straight to the, if like, oh, the cool stuff. Um, secondly, they also use words and terms that are interchangeably and often wrong. So automation is the same as AI, which it, it sometimes isn't, sometimes is. But you've got to have the fundamentals, as Michael said, in place, which is get, especially for incumbent traditional companies, you've got to have the data in a form that can then be used to train if you right. if you go through supervised learning so to train the algorithm. The old garbage in, garbage out concept applies as much here as it does it to anything yeah, And then you need somebody who's going to ask the right questions with it. Right. So I want to pick up this because of the incumbents I've seen yeah. who got to move quickest and earliest were actually the ones who, for some reason, really cared about data quality and integrity. Mm. So one of my clients has been Thomson Reuters. Mm. Now, they're an information company, and they exist by the canonical quality of their data. So relatively speaking, for an incumbent, they had very, very good data quality. So they were one of the incumbents who could start using AI early on in the process. I'm going to quote from a, an article in Harvard Business Review last year. It was looking at how companies are using AI today. They estimated 47% was in what they call process automation, which, as I see it, is kind of making back office processes simply work more efficiently. 38% was cognitive insight, and that's things like, David, you were talking about in terms of recommendation engines. And only 15% was actually the cognitive engagement with an Alexa or a Siri. We haven't talked about robotic process automation. What, what is robotic process automation? Why don't we talk about it much? Is it the kind of the forgotten sort of stepsister of, of artificial intelligence? <laughs> Great framing. I'd say it's talked about a lot in, in business, candidly. It's taking a process, it's codifying it, I mean, the, the words suggest automating it, often without human involvement. But the distinction between artificial intelligence and a broader concept is you have to have a learning part of it, so the adaptive part of behaviour, hence it is intelligent. Whereas RPA, those of us who are involved in designing macros decades ago, it is a new form of that. But it's not learning. 
there are other forms of RPA which do have, as, as Michael might say, uh, have some AI, but they're different. So when a company says, oh, I'm doing a big AI pilot initiative and actually it's RPA, what they're really saying is I want to take out some costs from my back office often. Um, I'll take three, three to five people out and I've done my AI strategy uh, wrong. And I, there's a key distinction I think you bring out here. We ended up doing things that way because the legacy information systems were so bad that you, instead of going in and fixing the core, you had robots pretending to be people. Right. It becomes AI when it acquires some flexibility, where if it doesn't see exactly what it's expecting, right. it can adapt. And that's the point at which I would actually argue it's an AI project rather than a pure process automation right. project. So pure, dumb process automation. I mean, we should be doing this anyway because it's a way of, of routinizing and speeding up and making more efficient our activities. But let's not call it AI unless there is some genuine adaptation and learning. But David is highlighting a key point here. Ironically, we're doing much less AI than we should because the technology is mature. If we can overcome the data issues and the talent issues, this is really about management and adoption diffusion. But on the flip side, we're also doing a bunch of AI that we shouldn't, where people are choosing to use AI because it's a sexy technology for applications that are not necessarily the right ones from a business point of view. So we've got this sort of double whammy. We're not exactly. doing as much as we should, and we're doing more than we should at the same time. And, of course, like many hyped-up concepts, if you add the word AI to it, suddenly it gets funding. And, and I think we can all agree that that is not where we should be going. So let's, let's make this a bit practical in the last five minutes or so. A lot of business people are thinking, I should be doing something in this area. What should they be actually doing? What are some of the practical steps in terms of either investing in the most attractive technologies or, or indeed in some of the, the broader changes they might be making in their workforces? David? So I think for the companies and the executives in particular who haven't sort of grown up digital, grown up AI, there's firstly having a bit of humility. The executive team are actually saying, what are we talking about here? So there's a learning gap they need to fill. Many of them don't know much about AI. Um, secondly, as Michael alluding to, the talent issue around how do they make themselves more attractive to work with academia, for example, where there's a lot of AI you know, obviously specialists. There's some of the startup organizations that can help them leapfrog the application of AI. So there's a talent issue of how to do business, how to make themselves attractive. And very importantly, getting the right people together to frame and work out which situations, which problems the AI can apply to. We are, in many traditional companies, going through a period of experimentation, lots of initiative. If you plotted them on a map and portfolio, they're a bit chaotic. So the opportunity is to look coherently and say, where is the right mix of risk return What's the right sort of trade-offs between different applications of AI and actually bring it all together as opposed to launching just another one. Right. And I think something you also said earlier was getting the, the techies, as it were, working much more closely with the commercially-minded people. because yeah. obviously And operationally. And operationally. Because the companies we've talked about have put AI into the centre of the business, detecting fraud, health diagnosis, credit ratings, investment management, and even in my content creation, new ad campaigns have come from the have been infused. These are at the centre of the organisation. They're not just at the back office. Michael, anything else you'd add to this in terms of what businesses should be doing, where the biggest opportunities lie? Uh, my overall view is this is not a technology problem anymore. This is about the adoption diffusion of the technology. It's a leadership and management challenge first. So I would absolutely echo what David said in if you're a top manager, ensure that you understand what it can do and not do. The whole point of this podcast is about the reality of it. Understand what it's good at and what it's bad at because that enables you as a business leader to target the application of this technology. Then two big things, data, 
you're going to have to clean up your data. I think as we were talking earlier, what I've seen is people who are doing this who used to be 80% algorithm people and 20% data people, that ratio is flipped. You're probably going to have to spend three or four times as much time, energy, and effort on cleaning up the data as you will be on building the AI. And the last key piece is then the talent to enable you to do that. In particular, people who are what I think of as ambidextrous. They both understand the technology and they understand the business application. That mix of skills is particularly valuable. And there aren't many of them. Well, indeed, and that was going to be my kind of final question, really. London Business School, we, we graduate 1,000-plus people a year. What should they be doing? What sort of skill set should they be developing in order to, to succeed in our AI world? There's some really practical things that some people may think are soft. There's genuine curiosity in somebody else who has a different skill set and background, as opposed to saying, I come from this background, I am superior to you. And frankly, there are companies, don't say it explicitly, but if you're a tech person, you're sort of often sometimes a second-class citizen. So there's something about humility and curiosity. Secondly, there's a genuine degree of listening, listening to a point of view before jumping to, here's the solution. These journeys towards new AI initiatives and applications, they're not A to B to C. You have bumps in the road. You have to be willing to go with it. And hence, you've got to feel, especially from a strategy perspective, you're not the sole architect. You're not the sole practitioner. And you have to be willing to play as part of a team and actually sometimes step back, listen, sometimes step forward. That sounds soft. I would say that's really, really hard. It's a change of mindset. I'd echo the humility piece because I think that's important. There's been a tendency for people who've been through their careers and reached the end of it, particularly if they come out of the as general managers, think I know everything. That reality is just no longer true when technology such as AI becomes so important. You've got to learn to be able to listen to people with specialist skills. And do our students have to understand the technology? They need to understand the characteristics of the technology, what it can do and not do. They need to understand why it does it or how it does it, but be able to say, oh, this is the class of problems for which it's suitable and these are its pros and cons. That they have to understand. But peering inside the black box, no, they don't need to know how to reweight a neural network. They need to know that there is a thing in there called a neural network and it has these characteristics. And they need to be able to have a, a sensible conversation with the data scientists who are actually yes. deep into this stuff. It's looking at the assumptions in their own business that perhaps have been there for, for years and decades and say, you know what, perhaps there isn't a new way to, to break this problem in my industry. Why do we sell advertising in that way? How do, why do we have these marketing campaigns? Why do we, Can we maximise return on investment in a different way? So quite basic business concepts that frankly have been there for decades and say, perhaps there is a different way. Yeah. Big shifts in business models, because one of this may be, oh, if we're going to go do that, the cost structure will be radically different. If the cost structure is radically different, what are the other implications of that? So this is about the application in business of a technology which has reached the point at which you can go use it today. So this is sound advice. We have to, as always, go back to the business problem. Let's figure out what the problem we're trying to solve is. And then we might discover that artificial intelligence is going to help us, but we might find that a different solution is equally valid. Yes. We have to leave it there. Thank you, Michael Davis and David Lansfield, for a fascinating conversation. Please join us again for more in our podcast series, The Reality of Artificial Intelligence, available on www.london.edu. Thank you for listening.